Infirmary Media. Start. People engage in stuff for dueling decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Scrap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Dueling decades. Who culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Dueling decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history, we just fight for it. I am Mark James and we are happy to be back right here on Dueling Decades. This week we look back at the worst of September. So let's meet this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, bringing you the worst of September 1987. Say hello to Man Crush. What's up, everybody, and welcome back. I mean, for us, it's been nearly a month since we recorded. Mark was in the middle of a move, so we labeled that as vacation for all those people at home. But we put out some cool retro episodes, so you might be actually saying to yourself, it's October, why the hell are you guys doing a September episode? <laughs> we planned this episode last month, and then the, the move happened, so we just held on to it. We don't want to throw anything away. So that's what I have, September of 1987. The worst of, by the way. Up next, representing the very worst of September 1976... It's the incomparable Mike Ranger. Hello, um, I'm Mike Ranger, and I am well beyond prepared to be the absolute worst contestant today. Again. <laughs> and also returning to the panel this week, dueling with the worst of September 1999, please welcome back the professor, Drew Zachman. What's up, everybody? It's Drew. I have the worst of September of 1999, and it was pretty bad. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So this week's celebrity guest judge is the lead vocalist from the multi-platinum selling band Lit. All rise for Judge A.J. Popoff. Woo. Hello, everybody. I'm A.J. Popoff. I sing for the band Lit. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be here judging some really uh, you know, shitty stuff. and you know what it didn't work out this way i'm just realizing this now with the name of your you know your your really popular song and then a worst of episode it just kind of like i am my own worst enemy you got the right guy yeah (laughs) (laughs) ladies and gentlemen the following contest will be held under dueling decades rules the judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five dueling decades categories movies television Music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final wildcard round. Remember, duelers, you can put a cat in the oven, but that don't make it a biscuit. So let's play some more. Dueling Decades. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's head right down to our judge, AJ Popoff, for the coin toss to see who goes first this week. Okay. What do you got? What do you got? got heads. Oh, did you guys call it? No, we didn't call it yet. <laughs> oh, oh, my bad. So who picked heads? You're the winner. <laughs> Any takers? <laughs> All right, Drew Zachman, you call it in the air. All right, I'll go tails. Ready? Heads again. Oh, all right. 
So I, I win. <laughs> At least now. All right, Mike, you take control of the board and get to select our first category. Where are we going? Oh, well, uh, I'm, I'm prepared. Uh, let's see. Let's go with uh, music, because I think this is my... Uh, this is the worst thing I have. <laughs> All right. So uh, once again, I failed to find a actual musical thing that you could purchase. So what I went with was a music story because in 1976, George Harrison's guitar was fucking crying. I found an article in the Daily News on September 8th, 1976, titled Beatles Stung on Song. The article says that a federal judge said yesterday that Beatle George Harrison was guilty of plagiarism in the preparation of his hit song, My Sweet Lord. District Judge Richard Owen said that the song was sounded very similar to the 1962 hit He's So Fine, recorded by the Chiffons. Owen said that Harrison did not consciously copy the earlier hit, but rather that his subconsciousness... His subconsciousness... <laughs> <laughs> Rather, that his subconscious knew the the uh, the note pattern. Uh, the song "My Sweet Lord" is off the Harrison's 1970 triple album "All Things Must Pass" and became the biggest single of 1971 in the UK and a number one hit in both UK and America. The court ordered that Harrison would pay 1.6 million in damages, which was later brought down to around 500,000. Damn, that's yeah. a lot. 1976. Yeah, Ooh. it's like five mil. All right, Drew Zachman, what do you have for the music round? All right. So September of 1999, uh, this pick, as AJ would say, is completely miserable. But before I get to 1999, I'd like to go back to 1990, if I may. Now, everybody knows Garth Brooks, right? Garth Brooks released an album called No Fences, which was awesome, by the way. Uh, Everybody knows Friends in Low Places, but it also had the Thunder Rolls and Unanswered Prayers on there. But that album sold over 18 million copies in the U.S. alone. Now, 1991, Brooks releases Rope in the Wind, which included such gems as Shameless, and one of my personal favorites of his, The River. Love that song. Great stuff. Anyway, that album sold over 10 million copies, again, in the U.S. And then in 1992, we got The Chase, which also sold over 10 million copies in the U.S., and the video for We Shall Be Free had Bernie Kozar in there, so that's a big deal, kids. Uh, and then <laughs> 1993, we got In Pieces, which also sold over 10 million copies in the U.S. So uh, for those of you keeping score at home, we're only at 1993, and Brooks has released four albums in the decade, each of which selling at least 10 million copies. That is nuts. So then 1995, he released Fresh Horses. That sold over 8 million copies. Still awesome. Sevens came out in 1997 and also sold over 10 million copies. So you see how Brooks has basically been crushing it at this point. Maybe he got bored. I don't know. But on September 28th, 1999, Brooks released an album, but not as Garth Brooks. He released an album as an alt rocker with a soul patch named Chris Gaines. And I got to be honest, the whole thing's weird. Like, everybody knows it was you, Garth, but he released an album where he assumes the fictitious persona of Australian rock artist Chris Gaines. And, uh, yeah, I I remember when this came out, and honestly, I didn't know what to do with it. It was kind of, uh, it was weird. But, you know, why would you be basically the best-selling artist of the 90s and then just flush it all away and confuse everybody? But anyway, Life of Chris Gaines, September 28th, 1999. 
It's Garth. Wasn't it for a movie or something? Yeah, but still terrible. So you just didn't go nuts and just it, it was a shift. His persona. It, it was, <laughs> I remember it was extremely confusing. It was to to a lot of people. Yeah, oh yeah. It was just so. I mean, if that happened in 2020, no one would think a damn thing of it. Like, bring me something else. It's just so damn weird. As a judge, I'm just giving my my premature opinion. His look, the I think that the look is what threw everybody off. Yeah. When you looked at it, you were like, "That's not Garth." Kind of emo with a soul patch. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was 1999. So, yeah. in just the other day, I saw something online that says Garth Brooks teases the return of Chris Gaines. So again, this is topical. Huh. <laughs> All these weird things coming out in 2020. Why not? All right, man crush. What do you have for the music round? All right, so let's go to September 7th of 1987. Here's the 13th album released by this band. And typically on these worst of episodes, it seems like I always get the popular band that just loses the it factor and like starts to fade. But this selection, it's sort of like that, but it's worse in my opinion. And after reading like countless reviews of this album, many people, they seem to agree with this. So here's the album, Momentary Lapse of Reason which I believe it sums up Pink Floyd's situation. The album sold fairly well. It did go uh, four times platinum. That's not the reason that the album wasn't a good album. The reason this is a terrible album is that Roger Waters was forced to resign from Pink Floyd, and the album felt like it was like a David Gilmore album without Roger Waters. I mean, he's Pink Floyd's driving creative force. I mean, this is the main songwriter for well over a decade, and it just didn't feel like Pink Floyd. And they used like a bunch of different musicians on this album to fill it up. And you barely had any significant contributions from Nick Mason or Richard Wright. So that's why I like, I just, I felt like this was a David Gilmore album with Pink Floyd names slapped on it. Probably so they didn't get sued by CBS records because they had to fulfill their contract. But I mean, being that Waters is driving force behind Pink Floyd, you know, you got to think about would there even be like a dark side of the moon if they had him resign like way back then? I mean, most likely not. I mean, without Waters, the band's just not the same. So removing that key ingredient, it just changed the band. To me, it was no longer Pink Floyd. I would have been totally fine if this was a new band, new name, but it wasn't Pink Floyd. And just to give you an example, like I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan. If Eddie Vedder left Pearl Jam, I don't think I'd be as interested to hear new material if they replaced him and kept the name Pearl Jam. And that's exactly what occurred on September 7th, 1987 with the release of Pink Floyd's momentary lapse of reason. Can I ask you a question, Man Crush? Yeah. How do you feel about Alice in Chains? So they replaced Lane Staley with... It's different. That's different. So when a guy passes away, I mean, it's it's a different feel. You know, you can continue to go. I actually like the new Alice in Chains stuff. Oh, I think it's good But I think if a, guy, if a guy resigns and then you just replace him and you're keeping the band name and it, it just doesn't feel the same. It feels different. You know, I don't know. That's my opinion. Fair. I bet Sid Barrett felt the same too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's toss it down to AJ Popoff for the ruling for round one. Round one. I mean, th- those are all shitty things. So, so I'm picking the <laughs> shittiest. <laughs> those are all. Yes. Pretty, they're all pretty shitty. But I would say, you know, coming from a, I guess, songwriter's point of view, um, you know, the whole having someone call you out for, you know, maybe being too inspired by something else. Uh, and it some slips through the cracks and it, it sort of, you get called out and sued for 
stealing a song. Now, there's, I, I feel like that's always been a, a weird thing in, in uh, you know, the history of music and, and for songwriters, you know, Vanilla Ice with, uh, you know, dun, 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 dun. And like, it, it gets, they get so precise on certain things. And man, it would, it would suck to get slapped with a, you know, half a million dollar lawsuit because of, you know, you were overly inspired by something. Now there's blatant ripoffs, which in that case, I think you need to reach out to the artists that you borrowed from and either give them full publishing or figure out a way that's a fair split. Uh, so I would say if it were me and I, I take all, all these things because it's music based very personally and put myself in, the, in their position, that's the suckiest thing. In my opinion, um, I'm not a big Pink Floyd fan. Sorry, guys, but so I, don't, I can't relate so much to that. Chris, uh, I mean, the whole uh, Garth Brooks thing, that was just wacky, kind of just weird, rather more weird than sucky. So I'm going with the, I'm going with the, uh, the lawsuit. Well, I uh, was not expecting this. Uh, <laughs> don't exactly know what I'm going to pick next. Was kind of hoping I wasn't going to have to make that decision. Um, <laughs> However, I do feel that, like, I, I, mean, I don't know if I made myself clear enough. You can't just, you know, if someone came up, you know, with a, with a song that said, you make me come, you make me complete, you make me completely sad. I would be like, fucking pay up, dude. <laughs> 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 Even though it's, you know, not maybe not as clever of a lyric, but whatever. Just, I, want, I want credit. How much does that happen though? When you guys kind of, you know, work with other bands, if just do people actually approach you though and say, Hey, I'm thinking about taking this piece of this song. Uh, and what would you think about that? Like, is it flattering or is it, you're like, dude, what the fuck? Like, do your own shit. I think the fact that if, if someone reaches out and, and they want to like redo or take apart, we actually had a, I can't even remember because they never became anything, but a pop artist that reached out and actually wanted to use Miserable um, and change, like had different verses or just use like, you know, a portion of it, wanted to share 50-50 publishing. And we were like, yeah, absolutely, let's do it. Um, she didn't have any success, but um but yeah, I think it's, I mean, that's flattering when someone wants to, you know, sort of recreate or use a piece of something you create. I mean, I think it's, you know, definitely a flattering gesture. Oh, that's cool. So it, because we never know. I mean, none of us are musicians. So it's, you always kind of wonder, do they take offense to it? Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you taking my stuff? We have been, ripped, we have been ripped off by a very popular band. Oh, no shit. But it, wasn't, was it wasn't a song. Uh, it was a video idea and it was a um, Mark from Blink-182 stole our, uh, you know, it was all the small things, all the, like the boy band recreations, all that. Yeah, yeah. We had we had uh, discussed that idea on our tour bus. That was actually going to be the video idea for our second single, Ziploc, um, which ironically, they ran naked through the video. But yeah, I mean, you, you got to keep your uh, your ideas, especially when you haven't executed them yet, keep them close to the wayside and not share them with other creative artists <laughs> now did they was it subconscious <laughs> like uh like mike's story or was it like just a blade like they were just like yeah it's a great idea i don't do it i don't I, you know i'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt i don't know if it was he just thought he had dreamt the idea or or, or not but you know. <laughs> well you guys still had a killer video with pamela anderson so that was yeah it was the miserable video that which we just yeah kind of got lucky on that one because it wasn't it wasn't our idea but putting pam in it as the as the giant woman was we're like well we'll do that this the treatment came in and the 50 foot woman eating the band and we're like well i don't you know we weren't backing it and we're like if we can get pam to do the you know the part of the of the giant woman we were we were pretty uh adamant about did that. you guys know her like was it like a friendly thing you were like hey you just want to do this video you, if you get a chance uh look up 
YouTube or I don't know if you, I'm pretty sure you could find it, uh, an episode of VIP Hard Val's Night. It was a VIP a sh- a show. Pam Anderson was. Yep. Yeah, 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 it was on Fox. And they wrote a whole episode about our band. And, and so we had been filming that that episode of that uh, show for the, for like a few days and became pretty tight with Pam and, and this, and the cast of that show. And yeah, she was super, super awesome. I'll definitely have to find that episode. That's the one, one of the few music videos you could put push mute and it's, you know, for some people it's even better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike Ranger, you've had a moment to think about it. You picked up a point in the first round. What category are we going with next? Well, I think we're going to go with news, Mark. On September 6, 1976, Frank Sinatra reunited Dean Martin with Jerry Lewis for the first time in 20 years at Jerry's annual Labor Day telethon and brought in a then-record $21.7 million. The worst thing here is not the spectacular reunion and uh, the amazing cause should certainly be celebrated. However, it's a fucking telethon. Yeah, raising money for kids. So horrible. Yeah, but it took up valuable TV time. <laughs> All right. You only got so many fucking channels. <laughs> well, back then, it's true. It's true. Yeah, screw those kids. Yeah, I want to watch fucking BJ and the Bear. They could have put that on channel three. I mean, shit. <laughs> Mike went Blackheart today. Mike's usually like the uh, real positive, nice hey, guy. Listen, I, I came prepared with my worst. all right drew zackman what do you have Uh, i think this one's a little bit worse but uh september 21st 1999 the chi chi earthquake this earthquake registered a 7.3 on the richter scale and it was the second deadliest quake in taiwan history after the 1935 earthquake Uh, it happened at 147 a.m local time uh, over 2,400 people died in this earthquake, and over 11,000 people were injured, and over 51,000 buildings were destroyed. And the Weather Bureau recorded 12, over t- almost 13,000 aftershocks in the month following the main quake, which is pretty nuts, I think. Um, and I found this to be interesting and crazy, but the energy released during this earthquake was approximately the same as the yield of the Tsar Bomba which was the most powerful nuclear weapon ever created and tested, which was back in October of 1961. The cost of damage was valued at around 10 billion U.S. dollars. And this quake was so damaging, some estimates stated that the the total cost would be about 10% of the entire GDP of the country in 1999. And this quake was so bad, right? So you know how all of us in the States refer to the events that happened on September 11th, 2001. We just and we kind of call it 9-11. Well, they refer to that tragedy as 9-21. So that's pretty bad. So that's what I'm going with. The Chi-Chi earthquake. Wow. Coincidentally, the Tsar Bomba, also the tastiest treat in the ice cream truck. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the news round? Uh, well, nobody died in my pick, so that's good. So we got, uh, it is the same date as his, though, uh, September 21st. 1987 i tried to pull in some sports with the nfl or any sports for that matter right now being horrible to watch i figured we'd go back to a time when sports were good but it's a worst of episode so you can be sure that the sports were also bad at least for a bit and that's because after the second week of the 1987 nfl season their 1982 collective bargaining agreement between the players and the teams has expired with no new deal 
And the biggest issue in this one, of course, was the inevitable deal breaker was the future of free agency, which we, as we know it now, everybody's getting paid buku bucks play. But, uh, but then uh, when you had the NFL commissioner, uh, Pete Rozelle, and the players union head, Gene Upshaw, they would go toe to toe for nearly a month before all was said and done. And on day one of the strike, Upshaw, he would order the players to walk out and nearly all of the NFL's 1,585 players would honor that call and they'd walk away from their teams, cleared their lockers out and hoisted up some picket signs outside. Most of them didn't even take it seriously. And some guys did cross the line, which is pretty funny. And they were outside just like being clowns. But I mean, it was lighthearted and it's 1987. I'm sure that wouldn't happen now. Uh, But obviously the first week that the strike happened, they canceled all the games. But that led to every general manager in the league had to put together a team on a week's notice. Just so, just imagine the chaos that ensued here. NFL players get a full training camp to prepare for the season. And typically these players, they, they show up in like May in shorts. They get the playbooks. They learn some of the stuff about their respective systems before moving on to four weeks of the preseason. This time, these teams had a week to fill the rosters and then teach the players the plays by that following Sunday, October 4th, which was the first game with the replacement players. So you had dudes from the Canadian football league, the arena league, the defunct. Now it's defunct. The USFL in 1987 guys stocking shelves at supermarkets, bartenders. They even had Tony Robinson who had, they released from prison to play quarterback for the Washington Redskins. I mean, most of these guys, they never played together. Some players were cut in the preseason, but some hadn't played in a while. Um, This is a great quote. Obviously, I'm not going to win this round with all the deaths that Drew just brought to the table. But this is a great quote that uh, this guy had. Um, He was a replacement quarterback for the Giants. His name was Jim Crucia. Probably butchering his last name. But he said, I looked around the huddle at my offensive lineman, and our strategy became to stay in the huddle for as long as we possibly could because they could not catch their breath from play to play. Wow. <laughs> so that's how bad it was. I mean, you had Bill Walsh, Hall of Fame coach. He had his replacement players running the old wishbone offense because he had a week to put this together. Right. And they they did this for three weeks until the players crossed the line. And, of course, the, the guy that I mentioned before that was released from prison, uh, Tony Robinson, he actually led the Washington Redskins to that victory against uh, the Dallas Cowboys who had crossed. And they, that's where the movie The Replacements was kind of like inspired by. So kind of cool. Not the worst thing in this round, obviously, but a little bit of sports for people at home. Yeah. All right. Let's hear the verdict for the news round from Judge A.J. Popoff. Uh, this is a little bit tough because I don't really know how I feel about, you know, um, I still got to learn your guys' names. But but the, uh, but the, the story about the, the uh, telethon, I feel like – it's more about what happened that year and not about how sucky you are right now about <laughs> looking back. <laughs> so if it was about like, man, we could should have found a better time, better time slot for, you know, you're taking away from my prime time, raising money for kids. Although that was, um, it did suck. It sucked for you. <laughs> I'm going to come across like the most cold hearted fuck. <laughs> I, had, I, had, I sympathize for you, but, uh, Don't worry, I wasn't around for 76, yeah, so you I wasn't even, even born yet. yet so. Wait, what year was this again, 76? 1976. I was not I quite there yet, but I'm sure my parents were real pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> I'll call them. We'll find out. And so, so and, and then I feel shitty saying this, but 
all the you know, loss of lives in Japan. And that was a terrible year for Japan, for the world. Anytime something like that goes down. And um, I remember, you know, I remember when that happened and it was scary. It was frightening watching the video footage in the stores out there and it just sheer disaster um, for the sake of a fun game show and this setting right now, I will have to, I'm, I'm going to go, I think with the, um, even though I'm not a sports guy and I could, honestly, I'm trying to like learn more about football so I can enjoy watching it with my friends and like get excited, but I'm going to go with the football story for, for a couple of different reasons. One, you mentioned the replacements and where the, we have the um, title sequence for that movie. I, the first song you hear is uh, like uh, almost the entire song <laughs> is Ziploc. But so I kind of backed that, but, but the actual story is pretty, pretty insane. It's like, it reminds me of, we've been in a position where we've had to replace um, and we've been fortunate. We remain pretty much original members throughout the majority. We're pretty much, we're still the three original members. We lost our drummer to, to brain cancer, um, but we've had to replace drummers. And so, you know, not to, um, you know, in the recent history, we, we actually had a guy who learned our entire an hour and 15 minute set in like one rehearsal and we had to play a show that way. So like, I know what it feels like to pull it together in, in a quick, yeah. short amount of time. So that is a sucky feeling. So that's a, that's to me a pretty sucky year. If I would, it was, it was sucky. Uh, not even on that magnitude of trying to pull together a whole football team, but, or a league for that matter. Yeah. Every team, like these guys, it's amazing. Now I came and picture it in 2020 getting all these players together. Of course we had two folded leagues in the last couple of years. Yep. So maybe it's a little bit easier to get those players to find them. But this back in 1987, like where the frig were they finding these dudes? Like they were literally like, I wasn't making that up. There was really guys who were working at supermarkets and bartenders That's so that they put on teams. Yeah, All I can picture in my head is like the beginning of necessary roughness where he goes to visit them <laughs> on the farm and you know, <laughs> yeah, dude, but they had to do it so fast too, yeah. because they canceled that week and the owners were like, we're not losing any money. We're, we're having games this season. We have a, a TV contract. We have to abide by it. And they put these games on. And I, I it's funny. If you go to YouTube and you look up, uh, you know, Len Berman, the sports guy, he did, uh, it's like a halftime show with Len Berman. He's so mad that he has to sit there and cover these games. It's a short clip. It's like three minutes long. But he's so pissed. And he's just covering them like, yeah, here's another game, 7-3. All right. And another game zero zero at halftime, but so we a, a real quick recap on that. So wh why exactly could the, uh, the, the players not play like the real players? So basically there was a, in 1982, they had a collective bargaining agreement and it was only good for five years in 1982. They actually struck. So they didn't think this would ever happen again. So they didn't think anything of it. And they just kept going without, upping this contract and everybody wanted free agency because the players wanted the big bucks and the owners didn't want to give it. So when the season started, everyone was just like, ah, Gene Upshaw and Roselle, they're going to get this done. It's not a big deal. And they didn't. So they went by, they played the first week, they played the second week and they're like, yo, where's this contract? Where's this new CBA? Yeah. And they just didn't do it. And uh, Gene Upshaw said, Hey, we're striking. And he told all the players and there was a lot of players who were pissed off. There were yeah. some players that didn't even cross the line that said, yeah, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm going to play like Mark Gasno for the jets. He played, there was a handful, not a lot of guys, but I think a lot of guys didn't take it seriously either because they thought it was going to be very quick. And they went out and they were just playing games. There's a lot of great stories about these dudes doing like crazy shit in the parking lot, like fucking around with these scabs 
as they called them that were coming in. But it wasn't like mean hearted like they did in the movie replacements. Like they would fuck around with these guys, but it was kind of like lighthearted. But unfortunately, it lasted three weeks. So they got uh, three weeks of replacement football. But I'm glad I won the round with that. All right, Man Crush, you pick up a point, take control of the board, and get to select the next category for our final one-point round. All right, let's do this. Let's go movies in the middle. Movies in the middle. We don't, It's usually movies are in the beginning of the end. This time we're putting it in the middle. September 25th, 1987. So even though like this is a worst of episode of Dueling Decades, I think it's important that we look at all aspects of what qualifies a movie to be the worst. Uh, you know, after doing the episode with Sam Levine, uh, was that last month, something dawned on me here. Like the movie doesn't need to be an absolute piece of shit. There could be other reasons that the movie could be considered bad. And in this case, the movie's incredible, but the sheer lack of coverage for the movie is what should be considered the worst. I rewatched this movie again last night and I actually watched it last month too. So watched it twice in two months. It's still amazing. Uh, yet I would venture to say that most people don't even know this movie exists. We put a poll up like we do every day on our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. Every morning we pick six movies that were released on that day and we throw them up there and we let people pick on this day. There were hundreds of votes for the six uh, movies that we had on there. This movie garnered four votes Four after. I think there were like 600 votes. It had four votes. And it's criminal because this movie rules, and that's why I picked it. Now, the week this movie came out, it went head-to-head with Real Men, the uh, James Belushi or Jim Belushi uh, movie, uh, The Big Town, China Girl, and The Princess Bride. So, obviously, this movie was overshadowed by the success of Princess Bride, and it only brought in just over $4 million at the box office. So, you're looking at about $9 million in 2020. And this movie was surprisingly written by Larry Cohen. This is the same guy who a few months back I picked in another Worst of episode for Uncle Sam. And uh, the same guy that wrote Maniac Cop and the stuff, but this movie is like his magnum opus, and it needs to be recognized. The movie stars two amazing actors in their prime. You got James Woods, Brian Dennehy. So you can expect excellent acting in this movie, and you got that. And the story is actually riveting. I wonder if Mike actually has seen this movie. Mike's the big movie head here. But if you're in the mood for like contract killers with no conscience, Lots of violence, deep-rooted conspiracies, cops at moonlight as successful authors, James Woods being a straight-up creep. And did I say lots of violence? Because there's a lot of violence in this movie. But all that sounds good. The criminally under-the-radar bestseller is the movie for you, and that was released on September 25th, 1987. All right, Mike Ranger, over to you for the movies round. Oh, well, thank you there, Mark. Uh, On September 29th, 1976, a sexual revolution hit U.S. theaters, but this time, movie patrons used the back door to see Red Fox star in the movie adaptation of the popular play, Norman, Is That You? Fox plays a Tulsa, Arizona shop owner whose wife runs off to Mexico with his brother. Fox then travels to L.A. to see his son only to find out that he's gay and spends the rest of the movie trying to cope. His complete lack of understanding leads him to go as far as to hiring his son a hooker. The film was a complete flop. Roger, Roger Ebert gave it two out of four stars, with Siskel, with Siskel giving it one and a half stars. Gary Arnold of the Washington Post called it a feeble attempt at a bedroom farce. I found an article in the Pittsburgh Press that called the movie terrible. 
and that the film doesn't simply flop. It lays the eggs it lays are strewn through every scene. It goes on to say it's as if all the places for laughter were left open and someone forgot to add in the artificial laugh track. Uh, despite these reviews, I found that Fox had some funny lines and that the film is pretty progressive for its time. Sounds like Joe a little bit. It's on the same path as Joe. I don't know. I think Joe with Red Fox, that sounds intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Drew Zachman, tell us about the worst of September 1999 movies. Yeah, so uh, you know when you have a movie directed by Hugh Johnson, it's going to be great. And, and no, it's not one of those movies. But this flick also has the likes of Cuba Gooding Jr. and the poor man's Johnny Depp Skeet Ulrich. So uh, for those of you keeping count at home, this film has a Hugh Johnson and a Skeet in there. Uh, anyway, I am talking about Chill Factor, which came out on September 1st, 1999. Now the film centers around two unwitting civilians who are forced to protect a deadly chemical weapon from the hands of terrorists. Uh, I mean, this shit happens all the time. You know, why would they thought this would be an interesting movie? I don't know. But yeah, Chill Factor, man. This flick had a budget of $34 million, but it only hauled in $11.8 million at the box office, so pretty terrible. And if the box office flop numbers aren't enough, this film received a rating of 11% on Rotten Tomatoes, and Roger Ebert said this film was cliche in every sense of the word. So, Chill Factor, September 1st, 1999. I know what I'm watching tonight. <laughs> All right, let's turn it over to AJ Popoff for the ruling for the movies round. This is this is a tough one for me. I mean, I think uh, I love a good movie, especially like a good classic. I, I don't really go to the movies on a regular basis, although uh, maybe that's just because I haven't. Nothing's really like struck me as a future classic. Um, that being said, I would say that. Uh, the this the what was the movie about the the gay kid and the and the dad uh that was called norman is that you ranger so i i'm with i think that might be the winner here only because the content now although or the premise i should say if that movie tried what that movie was to come out in 2020 or even like in the past decade it would never it would have been just slaughtered by reviews um but, but you've got to remember that back in 1976, it was a whole different world and the awareness, gay awareness and um, support for, you know, gay rights and, uh, and how to handle having a gay child was totally different. Um, I think that being, that being said, it's like, it's, it's terrible <laughs> the way the dad, you know, a parent that tries to force their kid to, you know, scare them straight or, you know, force something that they're just not into on them to correct what they feel is wrong with them. I think that's sucky. That's probably the suckiest thing here. Um, and then, you know, um, chill factor. I think I kind of go, I have to go against what any, any uh, journalists or I mean, as far as reviews, it got terrible reviews, which I usually terrible reviews makes me want to watch the movie even more because <laughs> I feel like they get it wrong so much of the time. Um, so I can't really back it being a, a sucky movie based on, critical acclaim if, if that's what i gather right because i'm trying to i'm still trying to process all this uh you know your guys it's a lot finish. to take in yeah yeah but you know what like you're right though because you can't listen to just one person on a review that's why i'm the same way as you if somebody tells me a movie is completely horrible yeah 
I want to see it because I want to see why it's so bad. And a lot of times, and I think Mike's the same way as well. Like we can watch a really shitty movie, like we did a couple weeks oh, yeah, ago. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, we watched Dead Heat. I mean, it's yeah. how much did you it's laugh? It's fun. Yeah, I laugh. It's just like it's a shitty movie, but it's funny. But I thought it was interesting, you know? Man Crush. You said you so you thought it was sucky because you thought the movie was a great movie, right? Yeah, I this one I flipped on its head. Yeah, it didn't get the recognition it deserved which is how I feel about a lot of my friends' bands. <laughs> yeah, it sucks. Like, sometimes, like, something's really amazing, and it comes out, and nobody sees it. Nobody knows about it. Yeah. And it, this is one of those movies. I didn't care if I won this round or not. I think people should go out and watch Bestseller. It's one of those movies where no, just nobody knows about it. When you, you post something up on social media, and everyone picked every other movie except for that one that day. And I was like, this is bullshit. I just made a note of it so I can go. I I always need movies to watch. We all know there's there's a lot more downtime than previous years. So it's good to have movies to go to go to. Exactly. That one, you'll have to rent it. It's uh, that's the only thing. It's like if anybody wants to see this one, it's not on Prime or anything. I actually own a copy of the DVD. But if uh, you need to see it, it's like I think it's like three ninety nine or something like that. On you got I think Prime has it. You got to make their money back somehow. Yeah, I mean, seriously, it's been around since 1987. Go watch that shit. And actually, before we get too far away from the last round, we are talking about all the devastation in 1999 with that earthquake. You were part of some devastation, too, and I meant to ask you, but we, we moved on to the next round. You were part of Woodstock 99. Were you still there when, like, all the shit went down, when all the fires started and whatnot? No, we actually, we played on the first day, so we got we had nothing but one of the best experiences of our lives. I mean, that was, uh, you know, at the time that was the biggest crowd we had ever played in front of. Uh, it was all great vibes. We, you know, as soon as we were done playing we went, went over to the other stage and we hung out and watched, um, you know, some, some other amazing shows. And we got out of there that night. Cause we had, you know, we were, we were just starting to, we were actually getting really busy. I would have loved to have hung out there. You know, in retrospect, I'm glad we got out of there. We didn't have to be a part of the shit show. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. Like that was one of the things I think we talked about uh, Woodstock 94 a couple weeks back and how we we wanted to go there. And I, at the time, I was only in 10th grade, but 99, it was like we wanted to go, but it was so commercialized. I mean, I Mike and I live kind of close to where Bethel is, the original okay. site. So when that one came up and it was like, how far is that from us, Mike? Like two and a half hours, probably. What, uh, Bethel? No, 99. That was in Rome. I oh, think. yeah, that's. Yeah, at least two and a half hours, something like that. Yeah, so like, it was just one of those things. They're like, ah, do we want to go? And we ended up watching a part of it on pay per view, but it was like that last day when it just went awry, and it was crazy. Like people were crowd surfing on those boards from uh, from all the I don't even know where they were pulling them from, but they were like crowd surfing on those. There's fires everywhere, fucking nuts. It reminded me a little bit of 2020. <laughs> yes. If 2020 was a concert, it'd be Woodstock '99. In retrospect, yeah, I was like, oh, look at—we we have it in us to act like total assholes. <laughs> Somebody call Fred Durst to do the anthem for this year. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, Mike Ranger, you picked up a point. Take control of the board. Get to select the next category for our first two-point round. All right. Once again, I'm just not expecting this. I, I, I'm trying extremely hard to be fucking terrible, but it's just it's just not working out for me. I'm just a really bad judge. No, you're doing great. <laughs> I'm terrible. <laughs> Mike loves it. Yeah, this is working out for me. I should fucking bring my worst more often. All right. Um, so uh, I'm going to go with uh, TV. 
so that that seems fun. That worked out with me uh, for the telethon. So uh, uh, on September twenty uh, third, nineteen seventy six, Pat Morita made an appearance on Welcome Back, Cotter as Japanese inventor Mister Takahashi for the first episode of the second season titled Career Day. Mr. Takahashi appears as a speaker at the school's career day. He offers Mr. Cotter a job in Chicago with a better salary, but of course Mr. Cotter declines so he can continue to teach the sweat hogs for basically no money. And so the Welcome Back Cotter spinoff Mr. T and Tina was born and premiered on ABC two days later on September 25th, 1976. Comedy explodes when East meets West one of the first shows to feature a predominantly Asian cast. And let me assure you that each joke is handled with class and dignity. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sure in 1976, (laughs) Mr. T is a widowed Japanese inventor who is sent with his family from Tokyo to set up a Chicago branch for his employer. He hires an American woman named Tina Kelly played by Suzanne Blanchard as a live in nanny for the kids. The series was a total flop, and although nine episodes had been filmed, only five aired before the series was canceled on October 30th, 1976. I found a review of the pilot episode in the Hartford Current titled Mr. T and Tina Lacks Laughs and goes on to say that Mr. T and Tina's prognosis is not good and that that it looks like a case of early death due to terminal boredom. Pat Morita actually left Happy Days to go do this. There you that go, Mr. T and Tina. The spin-off. What is it called? Mr. T Mr. and T Tina? Tina. Not only is it a terrible name. But Mr. T is not in it. No, there's no Mr. T, but I mean, <laughs> you know, that's just disappointing now at the time. I, I think that what's really frustrating here is that you you left Happy Days, but on top of that, it it's the most it's the stupidest spin-off ever. It makes zero sense. Like if Mr. Woodman goes to another school, that's a spin-off. You just introduced some character for 15 minutes and then just gave him his own show. It was like, you. why didn't he just get a, a Happy Day spinoff? Why didn't he go open his own restaurant? They had a lot of Happy Day spinoffs. Maybe they ran out. I think T and Tina would be a great like name for a glow wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Hollywood was on here a couple weeks ago nice. from Glow. Sent us a bar of soap, which is pretty awesome. If you guys, uh, I got to find that her link. Again, I'm going to post that on our Facebook if you guys have that. It's really cool bar soap. It's uh, it's clear and it's got like all these bats like made into it. I don't even know how else she did it, but I don't. It's so cool. I don't want to use it. It is pretty cool, <laughs> and I've dropped it several times. Oh, you fucker! <laughs> I'm trying not to like get it wet. I don't know why I put it on the sink. No, well, if you, it's just it, for it helps show. if you get it wet. I think. <laughs> That's what I heard. All right, man crush. What do you have for the television round? Oh, man, what do I have for the television round? Let's go September 19th, 1987. Here's a show that marks Suzanne Summers' huge return to television, and everyone loves Suzanne Summers. As Chrissy, she was on Three's Company, and as many probably remember, she left that show at the height of its popularity because of money. And This was like if Jennifer Aniston had walked away from Friends, except, like we talked about before, this occurred in 1981, and there were only like three stations. So just imagine how big that news was. And sadly, it kind of tarnished her reputation at the time. Uh, CBS, uh, they had planned to give her a show after she left. But ABC basically put the kibosh on that. They kept sending them like cease and desist orders. So that never transpired. So Suzanne, she headed to Vegas, which I don't know how many people actually know this. She left that show. She couldn't get any other TV work. So she went to Vegas and had a residency 
for years. She was doing like 600 shows a year. As a matter of fact, uh, in 1986, she was a Las Vegas Entertainer of the Year right before she left there. So she was primed for a return, and the networks came calling, kind of. Uh, so Lorimar Television, they pitched Suzanne to make her big return to television, offering her at the time, this is unheard of, 22-week guarantee for two years. And, to, and typically at this time, the studios were only offering like a 13-week guarantee, if you got a guarantee at all. Like Mike was saying, you get like nine episodes and five air. So what's the catch here? The show was one of these new shows that was premiering. Remember, this is 1987. They were premiering that fall. They were made strictly for syndication. So instead of having a primetime slot, her brand new sitcom called She's the Sheriff will air at 7.30 p.m., which is a slot typically given to game shows. Um, But here's another great tidbit about this one. And I found this one in one of the old newspapers. So on Three's Company, she was replaced by Priscilla Barnes. Well, Lorimar actually offered this role to Priscilla Barnes first. And Barnes balked when they gave her the deal. And then they offered it to Suzanne Summers as their backup. So that's pretty awesome. Uh, but Suzanne Summers, she did get her two seasons, 44 episodes, as the lead character, Hildy Granger, on the show. She's the sheriff. She did get her 44 episodes. But TV Guide would also rank this as the 44th worst show of all time. Uh, without going too deep, here's what it's about. Hildy Granger lives in a town near Lake Tahoe. This is from IMDb, by the way. I couldn't watch past five minutes of this. Uh, her husband, the sheriff, uh, he dies, and she just becomes a successor. I don't know how that happens, but it does in this TV show. Uh, and she tries to balance like her work life with raising her two children, and then she's got like this douchebag uh, deputy named Max who thought he was going to get the spot. And the rest of the show is he's trying to upstage her all the time. But uh, since Mike dropped a review, let me give you a review of this one as well. This is a clip from a newspaper. It says, based on her talent alone, Summers could pull this one off. But she's sabotaged beyond repair by a laugh-free script and atrocious direction. The humor is so broadly played, it loses whatever inherent punch it might have had words on paper. At least we lose sight of the fact we're supposed to be chortling. The producers have installed a laugh track remarkable for its inappropriateness. The artificial audience literally howls at every single scene, driving the real audience at home to distraction. We just want to grab this set with both hands and yell, shut up. So that's what we got. We got She's the Sheriff starring Suzanne Summers. Wow. An article that actually used the term Suzanne Summers and talent in the same sentence. <laughs> Come on, thigh master, bro. I thought I was waiting for it. I thought for sure you were gonna say sh- that 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 this deal she got was for thigh master. <laughs> nah, that was like that was in 1990, and that was huge, Ooh, man. Because yeah. uh, that kind of brought her back because she had that, and then what was the name of the show she was on on ABC? Where step by step, step by it's step, it's awful. Yeah. But she had a good run on that. That was around for like a good six, seven years. Yeah, but it's just like that's. Right around the time, like where TGIF, I just kind of started to tap out, and Miller Boyette Productions had become so stale by then. But you had Sasha Mitchell was on it, man. Yeah, but then you got to watch him do a spinning roundhouse into a fucking vending machine. How stupid is that? <laughs> He's a kickboxer, dude. <laughs> he lives in a fucking van. How horrible must it be to live in a van in like Wisconsin? What the fuck are the winners like? 
Was it down by the river? I don't know. <laughs> it, it was in their driveway. Fucking driveway. So you got this fucking oil spot fucking on the basketball court. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, Drew Zachman, what do you have for the television round? All right. So if you had a show with Will Arnett and Kate Walsh in it, one would think that would be halfway decent. Uh, the show also had Mike O'Malley. After all, the show I'm talking about is the Mike O'Malley show. Now, the show centered around Mike, a 30-year-old hockey enthusiast who lives with his friend Weasel, played by Mark Rosenthal, in New Haven, Connecticut. After attending the wedding of his best friend Jimmy, who was played by Will Arnett, Mike begins to reassess his life and decides it's time to grow up. Uh, I also like how his, you know, his description was he's a hockey enthusiast. It sounds like a horrible episode of, like, The Bachelor, you know, where they, they have, like, their, like, their job description, and it's like a, a chicken enthusiast. I saw that one time. But anyway, uh, like I mentioned, the show featured Will Arnett and Kate Walsh, and I love Kate Walsh. She's awesome in the Umbrella Academy. And uh, the debut episode was on September 21st. 1999 and uh let me check my notes it ran until september 28th 1999 uh they only aired two episodes before it was canceled they filmed they filmed eight six were unaired so yeah two episodes that's all we got which is surprising that premise seemed so promising but um yeah michael malley show aired september 21st 1999 ended seven days later and uh no participation trophy there kids I think if you mashed up all three of our shows, you could probably get one average show. <laughs> Starring Pat Morita. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Suzanne, somebody would watch it. All right, let's head down to AJ Popoff for the ruling on the television round. To be honest, the, the, these shows to them, that they're all equally sucky. <laughs> I mean, talk about, this is bad television. I don't really like watching television to begin with. But uh, I think Man Crush, she, uh, she's the sheriff, right? She's the sheriff. I, I, that's not the winner, but that, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Because it, because it came out on my birthday uh, back in, uh, what, what year was it? Uh, 1987. Yeah, 87, but it was my birthday. How old was that shit? I don't know. We won't need to talk about that. But I think that that's, <laughs> so that makes it not so sucky. Um I think Drew wins this one because that's just terrible. That's so sad. Because nobody even Two remembers episodes. the name of the show that he said. Because I still, I don't know anything about the show. Nothing excited me about it. It got two episodes and it's it's canceled. I mean, that just that's a sucky year for anybody. What was the name of it again? Exactly right. It was the it was called <laughs> the, Mike, the Mike O'Malley show. <laughs> How could you forget, right? <laughs> so congratulations, Drew. You finally won around. I'm on the board. <laughs> And with that victory, you tie up the game with Mike at two points apiece, heading into the final round. Now, Drew, because you won that round, you get the option of going first or deferring. Oh, I'm going to blow it right here. I'll just go first. <laughs> now, I'm probably going to catch a lot of shit for this one. Uh, <laughs> but I'm staying true to myself here because i uh not a fan. Okay, so Hot Products. September 28th, 1999, the VHS release of A Christmas Story. I'm sorry, guys. This movie is overrated. <laughs> I hate it. It's it's. Uh, I think TBS plays this freaking movie all day on Christmas or something like that. Yep. It's not that good. I'm sorry. I know people. It's one of those like nostalgia things. I get it. it has no bearing on me whatsoever. I, I do not like this movie. I think it's highly overrated. 
there are other staples, right, for for around the holiday season, right? There's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Elf, the Santa Claus, um, Home Alone, for crying out loud. Uh, but a Christmas story, that's not one that I want to watch. I just don't think it's funny. You know, maybe there's some, like I said, some nostalgia there for people. I know there's like always, you know, a couple quotes in there that people love to throw around every fucking year. But that's, I don't think that's enough to make this movie decent. I I, I hate a Christmas story. I'm sorry. You left out the best Christmas movie. Die Hard? Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, that's also good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, and I would gladly watch Charlie Brown over. I would watch any other movie on this, but this is on, like, it's it's on repeat. It's if it's not like Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, I think it might be Christmas Day, but it's on fucking repeat the entire day. So clearly, I do not watch TBS that day. Um, but anyway, yeah, sorry, this is uh, worst of for me the VHS release of a Christmas story. Hate it. I have the leg lamp in the next room. Terrible. Hey, real quick on that, you said that you're gonna have a lot of people pissed off at you for saying that. Yeah. I feel like I can say the same thing about Christmas music. I hate Christmas music. <laughs> so no lit Christmas album. <laughs> I mean, the only, I, I, I think the only kind of Christmas music there should be is like Sinatra, like crooner Christmases, like Frank Sinatra. Bing Crosby like, is classic. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you're not a crooner, don't sing Christmas songs, please. <laughs> a couple of years ago for my wife's, uh, I think it was for her 40th birthday. I brought her up to Foxwoods and I wanted to take her to a show. And the only show that was going on at the time was Mark remembers this? It was uh, it was a Christmas show, but it was ninety eight degrees. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, to balance it out, I bought a. Uh, there was also a comic up there, so I got tickets to that. But I got that show, and she was just like, "Why the fuck?" She's a new Kids on the Block fan, like when she was little, and I was like, "It's ninety eight degrees. It's kind of close, right?" Like, look at them. They're ninety eight degrees. Same. Feeling the heat in the winter. <laughs> that is a good date night, though. Good call. It was fun, but it was like so hokey, like you said, like the music, like, what are you guys doing? Why are you doing a Christmas show now? Like you're, I don't know. It's yeah. I I totally agree with what both of you guys are saying. All right, Mike Ranger. What did you bring for the worst of the hot products round? Well, so the issue with my pick here is that it's actually not, there's nothing bad about it. This is actually a perfectly (laughs) decent product. But it was the only, like, thing where I could find an exact fucking date. On September 9th, 1976, in Japan, JVC released the first consumer analog video recording tape cassettes known to us and to the boys and girls listening at home as VHS. Short for Video Home System, along with the VCR. Tape recording had been a part of the television industry since the 1950s with the first commercialized videotape recorders known as VTRs. Bringing this tech to home use in in the 1970s created the home video market and completely changed the economics of both the movie industry and television. VHS beat out Betamax as the industry standard in the 1980s, capturing 60% of the market and held strong against optical formats like Laserdisc until 2003 when DVDs became the new standard. VCRs were still being produced until the last known manufacturer ceased production in 2016. But now Betamax actually was released in America in early 1976, and uh, the VHS and the VCR came out in America in 1977, but it was released in 1976 in Japan, September 9th. 
Why didn't you go with beta? Because beta actually really did suck. <laughs> well, because I beta, it didn't come. It, the player wasn't released in the actual time frame that I had. Uh, so I had to stay within the rules. Otherwise, <laughs> but it's cool that you at least brought it up. You gave it some props, even though you brought it to a worst of episode when we we still collect VHS tapes. And you brought that to a worst of episode. If you would ask my wife, the VHS is the worst thing that ever existed. <laughs> yes, absolutely. As somebody who just moved, uh, owning a thousand VHS tapes and having to move them. Yeah, that's not fun. So that could be the worst of. I dig that. However, I love them. <laughs> hey, where did you where did you move to or from and where to? You just moved. It's same same town or? Yeah, I just I just moved. I moved like two towns over. AJ, you just went through a move yourself. You said right? Uh, yeah, that's why I was asking because I feel I feel your pain. Moving is a it's a fucking motherfucker. Did you move it, VHS too? No, actually, I I found myself throwing away a lot of like hundreds of pounds of CDs and a bunch of actually I gave a lot away I just set them out on my curb and like let, let neighbors like take them and I just can't I'm a I'm a um as much as I like old school I love vinyl records now more than ever because I actually started a collection when I was a kid and and kind of got away from it for the convenience of CDs and everything and then Man, honestly, now I just can't handle all the plastic. I just get it out of it. Like, it just takes up so much space. It's hard to move. I hear that. I still have, I have a hutch. I have, like, over 2,000 DVDs, and I have a couple wow. hundred VHS tapes, not as much as Mike has. But I have close to 1,000 CDs in this hutch, and they're closed in, and I stack them, like, standing up. So you can't even read what they are. The clear, All you see Blast. is, like, the clear side. So I don't know, like, I just can't pull them away from myself to throw them away because I've collected them for so, so long, years. but like, I'm never going to use them. Never going to use them. Like VHS and DVD, I'm going to play. But when was the last time you played any of those CDs? I mean, you got? I mean, cars don't even have CD players anymore, you know, or like you, you, everything's just Bluetooth or like USB. I was actually really disappointed when I got my new car and it didn't have the CD player. Well, I have <laughs> I like, I still have that CDs? booklet of like 175 fucking CDs, you know? Yeah. And all the ones you burned, all your mixed CDs. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, I used to make blend tapes. Oh, boner jams, number four. Yeah. <laughs> and then I would, I would put hidden tracks on there and surprise my friends. <laughs> all right, so let's close out this episode with Man Crush. What do you have for the hot products round? All right, well, first off, I'm glad because uh, we all picked the same product pretty much because uh, September 9th, 1987, uh, mine's a little bit different than a normal hot product. Not the product itself per se, but the fact that these products were highly sought after, but it wouldn't get released until January of 1988. And not only didn't they get the release of these products in September, but the companies at hand, they totally miss out on the entire holiday season. This one's a doozy, so stick with me here. So... In September, there was a court order that was put out in San Francisco. It was issued to halt the distribution of both Hoosiers and the Oscar award-winning war classic Platoon. And the kicker is this. Like, Hoosiers was already shipped to video stores around the country. Store owners, they were being mandated to pull the videos from their shelves. Platoon, on the other hand, it didn't get shipped yet. So that title, it wouldn't show up in any of these stores until after the injunctions were actually lifted. 
So since Hoosiers was already in stores, these distributors, they had to beg their customers to not sell or rent these movies. Although, like, they had no legal right to do this because they already owned them. They had them in their possession. They paid for them. But they were like, please do not sell these. So this is how it went. Like, Vestron Video, they filed a lawsuit. Remember Vestron Video? Like, all the cool videos had that V. They would come up in the beginning of your rental. Well, they claimed that they own the home video rights to both films. And Vestron was suing the producers of this, or both of the films, actually. It was Hemdale Productions. And they were claiming that they were slow in sending the platoon, like, master cassette to Vestron to be transferred to video after paying them $5 million in advance for exclusive rights to Hemdale to make platoon. So they basically gave Hemdale the money so they can do this movie before any of this even happened. So in response, Hemdale said that Vestron, like they forfeited all those rights when they failed to pay in a timely fashion. So Hemdale ended up selling these rights to both movies to HBO for $15 million. Now, 350,000 copies of platoon were already pre-sold to stores by HBO at a retail price of $99.95 a tape. So that's roughly $230 in 2020. It's a fucking deal right there. Hoosiers, it already had 200,000 copies that were already out, and that one was going for $89.95. So as you can see, these were pretty hot. I mean, the Platoon already was pre-sold. And if you recall, like Platoon had won the Oscar for Best Picture that year. So people wanted to see this movie. And with Christmas three months away, this is now like a perishable commodity, especially for both these companies. There's a lot to this story. I'll keep it brief. I'll keep this, the last part short here. But basically, like Hemdale screwed over Vestron. When they, they caught wind that they can get more than $7 million, which is the total amount that they were going to get from Vestron, they claimed you know, Vestron was slow in paying it, so they nullified that contract, and they sold it to HBO for more than double. And here's the rumor. All right, so the rumor going around that I found in newspapers is this. Mike, you'll love this one. This was in response to Vestron turning down Hemdale's movie pitch to them for ghoulies because they said it was too expensive only to pick up the movie from Charles Band for like peanuts. So people around the industry thought that uh, Hemdale was pissed off about that and that's why they kind of like scumbagged him on this. But in the end, Vestron ended up winning the war here the HBO ended up paying Vestron $15.7 million and gave up the rights to Vestron after September 1st, 1988 for 10 years. So HBO kept their the price of this video cassette for $99, which led to terrible shit sales. Pretty much everyone was just renting it. And then September 1st, 1988, when Vestron took over, they slashed the price to $30 and sold the shit out of it. So all the VHS heads out there, when you find two different copies, one's on HBO and one's a Vestron copy, that's why. So it's kind of a fucked up story, but both those titles are supposed to come out and just never did. Ruined Christmas. Now, are the HBO or the Vestron ones like collector's editions now, if you can find them? I don't know. Like The Vestron one you can find pretty easily. I actually have a Vestron one. The HBO one, it just says HBO at the bottom and the front. It's the only difference, really. Uh, I don't have one. Do you have one, Mike? Do you have a platoon copy? No. You know what? I I might have a copy of Hoosiers, but like I, I tend to like really only hold on to like the obscure stuff. So yeah, I have I, a copy yeah, of yeah, both on same. VHS. 
I'll have to check and see which versions it is. Oh, man. Let's pull our tapes out and compare. Yeah, it also depends on what yeah. year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go right down to AJ Popoff for the final ruling on this game. So when you guys went, so it's hot products. You guys all just by chance went with movies. Yeah, <laughs> it's fucking bizarre. It happens. It's making sometimes. it tough on me because let's see. I'm gonna rule. I'm gonna I'm gonna rule out like so. Instead of just finding the the suckiest one off the top, I'm gonna start with things I think are the coolest. So I'm gonna say VHS tapes. Man, that I think they had one of the longest rides out of all platforms. Right? I mean. The VHS tapes for movies was kind of like vinyl records. I sort of feel like, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the quality wasn't there, yeah. but in our hearts. Even, I think mean, they were using VHS tapes to even like record music for a while. There were like the, um, there was, there were recording machines that used, I think, VHS tapes. That could be total bullshit. Someone Google that, I mean, correct me later. <laughs> <laughs> the bit, you know, let's see, Christmas, a Christmas story. I'm with you on that. Um, I'm, I don't think it's a great movie. I think it's definitely way overrated. And it's, I, I'll turn it on for a minute to remind myself, oh, it's the season and, and try and get in the spirit. And then I'm like, what the hell am I watching? Then you go record a Christmas song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unless you record a classic. Don't stop. People stop trying to write Christmas songs. It's terrible. Terrible. The, the videos that got boycotted and they were like printing all these, you know, manufacturing all these uh, hard pieces of product and they couldn't get shipped right originally like to me that's like yeah. a big sucky fuck you to the manufacturers and, and the money put into this movie or and it's so for for that i think it's the suckiest of the year um so you win and what was i think that's the suckiest <laughs> story like when you're hearing about these things there's like, so many yeah there's so many levels to it that's why i picked this because it's like you you fucked up christmas i don't know how many people were actually buying platoon as a gift for somebody for christmas but i think you know as a gift to yourself over the holidays somebody would want to add that to their collection yeah. and that could never happen because they completely fucking ruined that and hoosiers and as, as a whole i think that was more movie category because it's not really a product i guess it sort of is a product but i guess i was sort of waiting to hear like five master <laughs> <laughs> as seen, as like as seen on tv products that really suck that being said, I mean, you know, you're putting out a product, a, a movie, a video, VHS tape, or a, um, VHS tapes in general. That's a product. Yeah, I mean, they sold, they pre-sold 350,000 of that platoon. That's insane. And it couldn't even get sent out. I mean, it's so, like, the whole deal, I, I actually wish I could have found more information on the actual lawsuit itself to see what the truth was. Because I was just going off what newspapers said from back then. But it's still a pretty fucked up deal that, you know, they agreed at $7 million, they backed out, sold it for more than double, and then, you know, they just couldn't do anything because of a court injunction for, like, what, four months? And it's not to... It was in every month's paper, like, multiple stories for months, Question, which is Sorry for the, for the uh, manufacturer, I guess, of the, of the movie, right? Because they, they actually made more money in the end. Ultimately, I feel bad for the video stores. Yeah. Because, like, you know, that was people's bread and butter. And especially in 1987, there were a lot of mom-pops. You didn't have Blockbuster, really. You know, you had, like, these smaller mom-pop video shops. Now they couldn't even sell these two gigantic titles yeah. for that year. So it, it does kind of suck. But I'll that was it. That was a devastating time for, for uh, movie rental. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Man Crush. Well, just like in Hoosiers, you come from behind and win this game. Three to two. 
Woo! <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. It's a little. I'm a little rusty. We had like a month off. I feel like, you know, things fell apart a little bit. But we, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. Like we do this every week, and not doing it for a month. Oh, absolutely. You felt it. Like you felt like not. You know, is it the same thing when you guys do music? Like if you don't do it like every single day, you, do you feel yeah. off? Yeah. I mean, we've only played. I mean, we haven't. It's this whole year. All of our shows got canceled. So we uh, we went from like no shows to to. Uh, putting out a, we did like one of those live streams from um, Brooklyn Bowl. We yeah. literally is a band that hasn't played together all year. And we're like, oh, now we're going to do this like super vulnerable show where you're like, you know, trying to do a, like a TV mix, basically a live mix and no crowd and just the most awkward thing ever. But yeah. So to go from zero to 11. That's got it. How does that feel when you're doing that with no crowd? I mean, it looks awkward for us to watch some of them. You- but it's so cool to watch you guys put it together with multiple pieces and people being in different places. Like, is it just bizarre? Like, what are you thinking in your head? It's man, it's, 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 you feel very vulnerable. It's like, it's an awkward, it's not, you know, the kind of setting we're used to. It's like the recording studio is one thing you're kind of used to that, but it's kind of weird because we've always been a live band and we've, we thrive on an audience. And, And to be honest with you, so many years playing clubs, like just that, close quarters with with a a hot sweaty crowd and just that energy exchange is kind of like what fed us and made us the band we were so then going from that to like having some success to where we're able to play like bigger stages and bigger crowds we were further and further away from the people that felt awkward at first but we got used to it it actually grew to like love it because it's a whole different kind of energy it's like it's a massive crowd of people which i you know prefer but but to do like TV shows, you know, like doing like the Jay Leno show, at least there's like a, there was a studio audience that's like kind of, you know, probably about 15 feet away from you, if not more. And the AC set at like, you know, 65, so you're freezing cold. And, you know, you got this guy, Jay Leno or, or any of those late night stars that you're used to watching on TV. So you're kind of like, it's just the most like nerve wracking thing ever. That's why I think maybe you see so many live performances on late night shows and whatnot where you know, bands sometimes totally choke and I get it. It's like, yeah. man, you're, you're freezing, you're nervous, you're out of your element. So yeah, to do, do something like a live streaming show is, is kind of like the, you know, it's one of those, it's just like, it's different. It's not why you got in the business to do, you know, virtual shit. That's not real. <laughs> right. You know, right. Not, right. I am back in it. And I, I hope we don't do very many more of those, but you know, that being said, there's, I'd rather do that than not play at all. So I'll take it. Right. What do you guys feel like going forward? Cause I saw you already have dates planned for next year, right? Yeah. We're, um, we're actually, we have a European tour with bowling for soup, um, on the books already and tickets were already on, already on sale. Almost. I mean, shit, I think day two, they were like 30% sold already. Um, that's not till next year. So people are dying to, to go to live shows, even though, you know, it's, you gotta be within reason, you know, everyone's got to kind of, do what they're comfortable with and follow the rules to, to not screw anybody else out of their program. You know what I mean? Like everyone's got their own beliefs as to what we should all be doing. Uh, right. How do you think, how do you think music's going to be though? I mean, like everything else we can kind of social distance and we could do this and that with music. It's, it's so intimate and like, especially with the crowd and, you know, with rock, you got like a mosh pit or this and that. How do you think that whole thing is going to change? 
Like, have they said anything to like what kind of restrictions are they putting on these shows or are they saying anything like that? Are they just hoping for a vaccine? Yeah, I've already seen it. Like, I mean, most states do have like restaurants are open. Some of them are like to where you can eat outside if the tables are spaced out enough and you're at, you know, outdoors, whatever. Um, I see that. And a lot of places, California had it, you know, Tennessee has it. Tennessee's a lot more like laid back than a lot of places, but um, I, I kind of feel like if you're able to sit at dinner tables, you know, that are six feet apart, then, you know, why not have a guy on stage that's instead of at a table, he's over on a stage playing for these people at their tables at a restaurant. Like I don't see the difference really in that. but um it's gonna take some time and i think you know we everybody's gotta like you know as we are doing shows virtually accept that you're not gonna get your way 100 percent, and you know play ball play by some of the rules and and let's get there you know when when it's time and i I think we can't just not push it a little bit you know a little more and more to kind of get us there otherwise we're gonna sit in you know purgatory for, for who knows it's inevitable that well, I'm in New York, so like we're we're still pretty. Mike, would you say we're still fairly locked down? Compared um, to, I mean, we're we're starting to get back to normal a little bit, but then they pull the reins back all the time. So, it's, yeah, I don't it's, know, like, it's weird. It's weird right now. It's like every time we think we're getting somewhere, we go a couple steps back. I guess. Yeah, we get pulled back over here. It's it's bizarre. Like I have two concerts. I bought Billy Joel tickets last October to see him at Madison Square Garden, and that's pushed back till November of next year. So it'll already be two years since I bought tickets. GNR tickets I had at uh, City or uh, MetLife Stadium, that got pushed back to next summer. And I, th- I think next year, though, if everything starts to go well, people are going to lose their minds at concerts. I think it's going to be, like, insane. It's true. I mean, just, just going off of, like, ticket sales for next year for, for the tour, it, they're, they're definitely selling quick. Um but also the tour bus companies, they're requiring cash deposits already for summer tours next oh, year wow. because the band, all the bands are reserving all the tour buses. It's good though. I yeah. mean, hopefully we get back and it goes back to normal. And we can all you know go to concerts and be assholes again and yeah. be drunk and light <laughs> shit on fire and uh, surf on boards like it's 1999. I think we can agree. We all, we, all want, we all definitely want that. And it's just a matter of how we get there and hope we get there sooner than later. Where can people go to find like your shows and stuff like that that are uh, going to be happening? I mean, anywhere on social media, Lit Band official, or you know, we have a website, litband.com. Um, but yeah, we, we keep everyone updated, and yeah, there's stuff. There's definitely stuff coming up. The virtual, um, we got some virtual stuff. I mean, I think we're going to put that. I think you can still actually get that um, show, like a rewatch, you know, for obviously a, a reduced price. We're we're doing. We're working on. Actually, we're not working on it. There's a film company working on a documentary on us right now that we're um, that we're going to be firing up. And we're going mean, to – we just got other stuff we're going to probably put out on Netflix. We got a, a home video we put out years ago. I don't know if you guys – anybody, any of you guys have seen it, but it's about almost three hours long. And it's just – it's crazy just to watch, whether you're a fan of our band or not, to watch the process of a, of a band that's, you know, been together for 25-plus years – but we, we always had a video camera with us. So you watch the process of being a band that, you know, goes on our first tour and walks into clubs that are, you know, empty aside from like, you know, the loaders and like the bartender and just watch the development over the years and how it progressed into the making of the records, the tours as they got bigger and the backstage shenanigans and 
the excitement and all that. It just, it's just kind of cool to see how the nineties, you know, we caught the tail end of the nineties and we still got to be part of, you know, the MTV bands and doing TRL and all that stuff. So, you know, people that want to see behind the scenes of that, you know, that kind of stuff. And from guys that you know, had, had a big dream as high school friends to, to one day be on the radio, one day be on MTV and just how we made it happen. Um, that's, we just thought, man, how cool would it be just throw this thing up on Netflix and give people an opportunity to, to watch it when they're got nothing better to watch. We're running out of Is that, so when's that going to be on Netflix? We're, we're actually right now, we actually just had a meeting about the, the outlets, whether it's be Hulu, Amazon Prime, Netflix. And so that's all in the works right now. I hope sooner than later, because I mean, honestly, we're, you know, I'm writing down notes. Anytime someone talks about a show or a documentary, I'm literally like, oh, what's that again? It'll be like the new Tiger King. I want to like, like totally. <laughs> hey, by the way, there's an episode of Tiger King. Did you see that where he actually sits at a computer? And he's like, he goes, uh, the Tiger King's like, and his like, his dude goes, and like, somebody like pointed that out. We're like, what the hell? That show is classic. Like that was the so entire crazy. country in March and April was completely invested. Dude, that one. And have you seen that? Don't fuck with cats or whatever it's called. No. What's that? Check that one out. <laughs> I Wait, think is that called- on Netflix also? Yeah. Oh, oh man. It's the, it's real stuff. It's so, it's the most disturbing thing I've ever seen on TV next to Gummo. It's crazy. Gummo is awesome. Oh man. Is it? <laughs> it's awesome. It's more is it like animal cruelty or something, or is it just like it goes beyond that? It's like serial killer, weird. It, just watch it, man. I, seriously, like if you got nothing better, I, it's worth putting on your list. Right. <laughs> can I watch it? Like, here's the reason I asked that. My daughter's 14. Nope. Anything to do where, like, if she walks past an animal getting tortured, she will lose her shit, dude. It doesn't. It doesn't show. There's one scene. That is, I can't even watch it because yeah, it's, but the Ooh. rest of it is more about this psychopath and just this mind fuck of a journey, um, and how they how they like stalk the guy and kind of find him. He's like sort of hiding behind his profile that he sort of made up, and he just he torments people, but they end up. You gotta, I don't. I just almost, all right. That's it's going on the list tonight. Tonight's lineup is gonna be Chill Factor. And then I'm putting that on right after it. <laughs> and you have a cameo too, AJ. You want to like plug all your stuff now before you go? Um, you know, we, we honestly, we, we don't really have, we're actually writing right now, um, new lit stuff, but we, so I mean, you, you had mentioned um, bands that had, that came out with new singers or different members or whatever, and they should have called it, you know, don't call it the same thing and whatever we actually put out a record or the last one we put out was called these are the days and my brother and i've been coming to nashville now for a decade and a half um writing we write a lot of country music too um and we always sort of kept the two separate but as the years went on and as we got older and our tastes kind of like we grew into this like falling in love with country music and writing that we had all these songs that we had written and we're like whether someone else cuts them or not, like we love these songs, let's record them. And right. so we started recording these songs and we ended up making a whole record and putting it out. We, we went back and forth about what well, should we put it out or not? And we put it out as lit in retrospect, that should have been something we called pop off brothers. Cause that's, 
was separate from what lit kind of like the identity and the brand. Well, I hate using that word brand, but right. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is the easiest way to explain it. Fans of the music weren't all necessarily on board with our entire story on how we kind of arrived at this place um, as songwriters. So we, we decided to split it. And I think it was like, once we did that, and my brother and I were like the main, we're the main songwriters in lit as well. So we kind of, by separating the two, it opened up the floodgate of ins- like inspiration to write classic lit sounding music. Cause we're like, okay, now we can do this, but it's a different thing. So we're going to keep writing that, but we have a bunch of classic late nineties, early two thousands sounding lit songs that I think our fans are, will be happy to hear that we're not um, taking them down this road down, that they necessarily yeah. sign up for, you know what I mean? But I think people understand that too. Like your musical taste changes just like anybody else's over the years. So, you know, if you go down a different path, it's not all about money. It's all about, you know, what you guys want to do. Hundred so percent. Yeah. If you come out with something, I, I, I totally dig that. I listened to your new stuff that's on Spotify. Um, that would have come out like 2018 or something like that. It's not that old yeah. and yeah, it's different. I mean, a lot of people do that. Like when, yeah. uh, but you know what? I, I get what you're saying when, uh, like I said before, I'm a big Pearl Jam fan. When they did that whole like Middle Eastern sound, uh, like in the, was like mid nineties or whatever. Mm-hmm. At first I was kind of like, eh, it's kind of weird, but then I got into it, you know, it's just, maybe you open up the eyes and ears to, uh, to other tastes. So yeah. Cool. To be honest, like I, I'm, I'm more than happy to do, like we had a lot of lit fans that, uh, actually I should say the majority a majority of the old school lit fans were saying nothing but positive things about our, our more country leaning stuff but um, it feels good to separate the two now it feels great to get on stage and be able to not because we, we were like combining that our set was like you know 30% new stuff that so for me especially as a singer like when I sing the stuff we write here it just naturally comes out just different you know what I mean um so to have to kind of like go back 20 years in style. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, it's almost like just even how you talk to your friends or just, just as a person, how you dressed 20 years ago was different. So to like sort of do like a, a vocal costume change, you know, just <laughs> feel right. Yeah. So it does. It does feel good to sort of put myself back in that place. I was even 10 years ago. 15 years ago and just feel that and, and embrace it and rock out more. I, I I'm ready to do it. I wasn't ready to do it five years ago. That's awesome though. At least you guys are doing it. You're still doing it. I mean, for yeah. a long time, and I'm, and I, as long as you know, the whole reason for shifting it to begin with is like, if we're not excited to get mm-hmm. on stage, then we're faking it. And I would never want to, you know, it's just, it's no fun when you're not like feeling it. Hey, la- last question. When, uh, the, <laughs> When the word lit became a thing, were you like, fuck? <laughs> or did you just did you just grab a hold of it and you're like, yeah, whatever? Honestly, I, I mean, it, it, I don't think it really, it, the only way it really affected us was there were too many companies that, that our uh, copyright lawyer had to go, yeah, kind of go after, not on the small level, but like, like when the Kardashians start putting out like lit rafts and lit, so we're like, hey, like so that's our, you know, we own that. <laughs> you can't just go putting out merch that says lit on it. So that got a little weird, but to be honest with you, like you could, if you re, if you put up hashtag lit, the only thing that did kind of suck is we had to start adding band at the end. Lit band. Yeah. That, that's why I asked you because like when I was looking you guys up again, I had to put band on everything. Cause every time I put lit, I get like 
weed manufacturers and like yeah. all different kinds of shit. It's like, God, it's, this is tough now. But you, yeah. do you guys own the rights to that word? I mean, it depends. What's licensed, you know, for music, it's licensed for, you know, um, merchandise. But I mean, people could, it's lit, that's lit, things like that. Now we don't own that. Maybe you'll get people that are just typing it in, looking for like those weed brands, and they're like, "Oh shit, lit has a band," and then they, you yeah. know, you get new fans. So that's pretty sweet. Yeah, there have been a couple like like rap artists or like young bands that didn't really know. I think that started kind of using it, and like, it's not hard to find. You know, as soon as they go to put their band name in, they see, "Oh crap, it's this band." And yeah. <laughs> that's like we had uh, Wax the rapper on, and he goes through the same shit with uh you know with wax but i figured i'd ask that because that w- it was a pain when i was like searching for stuff i was like no no no, i gotta fuck i gotta put like lit band and your <laughs> website's litband.com right yeah and when we first came out we people would ask us about the name lit they, they, back in the day it was like lit like you guys get stoned all the time like is because that's what lit was then lit what lit means now is more like what we named the band for about you know what i mean like we were like lit was our energy was you know i think there was like a, someone reviewed reviewed one of our early shows. Like, oh, I was like, and you can't say this anymore either. But like, it was like watching a bomb go off in a building because like, <laughs> we tried to put an arena show in a club. Like, we tried to like, so you know, our show was lit and and nothing to do with getting high. Although I'm not opposed to it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody here is. But thanks a lot for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. And best of luck with the tour and everything else. And anytime you want to come back, man, seriously, it would be cool if you came back. I appreciate you guys, man. Sorry again, I was late today. No, don't, dude, don't even sweat it. Hate making people wait. All right, man. You guys, (laughs) care. Hope to see you soon. Take care. All right, be well, AJ. Thanks, AJ. Take care, man. Thank you. All right. Well, that's another win for Man Crush in the books. Remember to head over to facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. Join our private group where you can share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.